Hi, my name is Fritzi Horstman and welcome to Compassion in Action. Today, my guest is Dr. Kim Gorgans. Dr. Kim Gorgans is a professor of psychophysiology, clinical neuropsychology, and psychology of criminal behavior at University of Denver. She manages a large portfolio of traumatic brain injury, TBI, related research and has lectured extensively on those issues, including a 2010 TED Talk on youth sports concussion, a 2018 TED Talk on brain injuries and criminal justice, several NPR spots, and an interview on CNN with Anderson Cooper. Her work has been featured in US News, Newsweek, Salon, and more. Her research studies the reported injury history, cognitive function, and brain biomarkers of youth and college athletes, probationers, and inmates. Her mission is to better understand the short and long-term impacts of injuring our most vital organ. Kim Gorgans, welcome to Compassion in Action. I am so excited to have you here with us today. And I just wanna kick it off with the first question. Um, you said on your TED talk, you said 50 to 80% of the people in the criminal justice system have traumatic brain injury or TBI. And how do we know this and what are your findings? Uh, I love it. First of all, Fritzy, thank you for having me and letting me be part of a conversation that uh, you've really curated to bring awareness to traumatic brain injury in general. So I'm so pleased to be part of your momentum. Our research on criminal justice, we've been doing this work for, this is our the end of our eighth year. We'll start our ninth year in just a few weeks, mid-March. Uh, we've screened just about 5,000 inmates and probationers in the Colorado criminal justice system. We also have great data sharing partnerships with colleagues in Pennsylvania, looking at their adult and juvenile criminal justice system, traumatic brain injury prevalence rates too. So what we found is that the rate of significant traumatic brain injury history ranges on the low end from about 35 to the high end of about 97, depending on the criminal justice setting and depending on the population. So for example, we could talk separately about the unique risk to women who are incarcerated. So that number is 97% in some female specific offender programs and the overall rate across the board, across all of the settings is 55%. Wow. And just for our audience who may not know what traumatic brain injury is and yeah. what, what it does and why is this so significant? Um, go ahead. Boy, those are such great questions, right? This is uh, what we'll spend our whole careers trying to uh, educate people about and to warn people about on the primary prevention side to wear a helmet and wear a seatbelt. Uh, traumatic brain injury is any blow to the head, and it could be an external force. We also see traumatic brain injury or the accumulation of uh, impact force in the brain from a rotational impact to the body, for example. We've also expanded the definition of traumatic brain injury to include blast injuries, so the exposure to that hyper-pressurized blast wave, for example. So the application of external force to the brain is a traumatic brain injury. Traumatic brain injury is the most common presentation of all of the neurological conditions. 
we see there are about 3.8 million people living with uh, any kind of disability related to traumatic brain injury and the population base rate of brain injury is about 8.5% for any kind of brain injury. Really quickly though, there are different kinds of severities when we talk about brain injury. It's like a continuum, like anything. So on the one end are mild traumatic brain injuries or concussions. And these are injuries that include any alteration of consciousness. Some people may lose consciousness and most of the injuries that occur are mild. In fact, about 85% of all of the traumatic brain injuries sustained in the course of a year are mild injuries. The remaining 15% are a little bit further along the continuum and are moderate and severe injuries. So those are injuries, for example, with a loss of consciousness of more than 30 minutes up to 24 hours and more. So, What's really interesting though, in the traumatic brain injury world, so most people will recover fully from a mild injury. For reasons we don't fully understand, that's not true for everyone. And there are like some unique things we're learning about neurobiology and the unique vulnerabilities of some people's brains. So most people will recover from traumatic brain injury, but among the folks who don't and the folks with moderate and severe injuries, there's this really interesting disconnect between the consequence of the injury and the severity of the injury. So you can have someone with a relatively minor, mild injury who has really sweeping broad deficits. And you can have someone with a moderate severe injury have a really stunning recovery where they get almost back to baseline. So. In clinical practice, it's so interesting because it makes a point. We say, if you've seen one brain injury, you've seen one brain injury. So it's we don't have the kind of technology even to answer the questions we wanna ask. So uh, the whole field is a really exciting place to be and each patient to press them to their full recovery is a really interesting journey. And anyway, that was like the longest answer to your question ever, but. Uh, traumatic brain injury, external blow to the head, continuum of severity, and this really interesting disconnect between the severity of the consequence of that injury and the severity of the injury itself. So what are some of the symptoms of traumatic brain injury? And we're talking more, more intense, I would say, you know, I mean, what, what are some of the symptoms? So there are really classic presentations. There's kind of different I think of them as like, uh, this is kind of sloppy, but I think of them as like buckets of complaints. So you have a physical bucket and that includes headache pain, which is really kind of ubiquitous. I think 95% of people experience headache pain after even a mild injury. So you have these physical complaints that can include dizziness, vertigo, headache pain, neck pain. Then you have a whole bucket of emotional problems. So that's like irritability, depression, risk for self-harm and suicidality skyrockets after brain injury, all of the behavioral health consequences. So things like risk for substance abuse, risk for development of mental illness. So really significant consequences in this emotional or affective bucket. In that same bucket are all of the cognitive consequences. So things like, um, 
you know, uh, shorter attention span, poor memory, slower processing speed, uh, you know, the loss of concentration. So you see all of these cognitive consequences. And in this third bucket are all these functional changes like sleep disturbance, for example. So sleep disturbance is kind of a, a common denominator for a lot of the conditions that, that we study in our lab. So we're studying injuries, acute and long-term, and we're studying aging and diseased brains. So sleep disturbance is like the common denominator that all of those groups share. Wow. Um, that middle section that you were talking about, um, that bucket. Yeah. Those symptoms sound very similar to what I've, I've been studying about adverse childhood experiences and trauma. Totally. It's, I mean, they're, they're identical. It's totally true. Uh, what I'll say, Fritzi, about that, and we could go into a rabbit hole and I would like love this so much, but uh, what we find in criminal justice is that among our folks, so among these 5,000 or so folks who we've evaluated, uh, of the folks with traumatic brain injury in criminal justice, 60% of them were exposed to childhood violence. So there's a tremendous overlap. And in fact, and these data we're actually publishing with right now, the folks who were exposed to childhood violence statistically are the most likely to have cognitive deficits. And, and who's to say what the chicken egg causal relationship there is, but it's a really interesting finding. The other interesting finding though, if we look at the larger body of neuroscience research on childhood trauma and traumatic brain injury, is that both result in loss of volume in one structure of the brain in particular, the hippocampus. So in a lot of ways, I talk about like loss of hippocampal volume is like the end point with all of these different behavioral manifestations, right? With uh, cognitive deficits and emotional complaints and whatever gets you there, if it's childhood trauma, if it's chronic alcohol use, if it's uh, genetic predisposition to depression, if it's traumatic brain injury, right? The net effect is this really tangible structural brain change and that changes the game across the board. And what are what does it present? Like um, a hippocampus that is smaller. Yeah. What, what functions are impaired because of that? Yeah, it's a great question. So the hippocampus in the brain is the structure of memory consolidation. So you see uh, kind of an interesting cognitive loss. What you also see if you study the brains of people with dementing disease is that they lose hippocampal volume. And uh, now if I say like, let's look at a healthy brain for a minute, the hippocampus is also the most plastic part of the brain. So it's one of the areas in the brain where researchers have determined just in the last 15 or so years that we grow new neurons. So this, right, like neurogenesis, which you may have heard a lot about. So the hippocampus responds to not only its environment, cerebral environment, so changes in the brain itself, especially after injury, it's very vulnerable to damage from inflammation, for example, neuroinflammation or damage from seizures. It's also really responsive to changes in the larger environment. So exposure to stress or traumatic experiences, for example. So uh, 
it's kind of a bellwether for what's going on in the brain and in your life. So you can see hippocampal volume loss. And what's interesting though, is interventions designed to treat the kinds of symptoms that let's say me as a psychologist would treat with, maybe I'm treating someone with depression or we're talking about relapse prevention because they're abusing alcohol. But if I looked at them in an MRI, I would see as they get better, their hippocampal volume is restored. So that's like, who knows which is which, but any intervention designed to improve any of these symptoms restores hippocampal volume. And there's interventions designed just to restore hippocampal volume that have all these benefits of improving mood and improving cognition. So it's, it's a really interesting area of study, like just hippocampal function and how important it may be for all of the things we're studying. Right, but bottom line is brain health creates a healthy human, right? Totally, yep. And what you're, what you're describing is when we have this impairment, I, I mean, and this is what I'm extracting, is yeah. that we're n- not able to function you know, in a, in a social, social, emotional way. We're right. like, so, and then people are penalized because it's a physical problem. I mean, you wouldn't be penalized for limping or you wouldn't be right. penalized for right. having a broken arm, not being able to write. Yeah. But the right. way you- So important. Yeah. So what, what, um, I mean, and I also want to talk about the NFL players because yeah. this is, this is the place where, where we, we have like no problem understanding that they have violent outbursts, that they have um, suicidal ideation, that they maybe beat up their wife because they have a, but, but people go to prison for this. Yeah, yep. And the route from brain injury into criminal justice is, uh, is kind of a descent through all of the safety nets that we have available to people. And there are more robust safety nets available to some people than others. So, you know, some people have a more precipitous descent into criminal justice. We think about the relationship between traumatic brain injury and criminal behavior as being a kind of complicated one. So one of the routes into criminal justice is after brain injury, the kinds of deficits that people have, the kind of cognitive deficits, let's say, for example, they may be more impulsive, they're disinhibited, they're more easily agitated, potentially they're physically combative. Those are the kinds of deficits that set them up for getting into trouble. So you can see this kind of direct route, do not pass go from injury into criminal justice. But then you see all the other folks with a really complicated course into criminal justice. So they may sustain an injury in childhood, for example, and not even notice the deficits related to that injury for another decade, right? Until maybe they're in their teen years. And at that point, right, the injury conferred a risk for development of ADHD, for example, and conferred a risk for development of a substance use disorder. So. Uh, then the academic failure and the substance use and they've burned through their family and social supports creates this trajectory into criminal justice. So the TBI is just one of several of these contributing factors to that, to ultimately that vulnerability for criminal justice involvement. So it's, we talk a lot in my field about 
uh, how preventable this is, right? Like if you could take traumatic brain injury off the table, if we could do a better job with uh, preventing child abuse, for example, and teaching parents frustration management and intervening earlier for kids that we know are at risk. And if we could get kids helmeted and reduce the rate of gang violence from peer to peer, like there are so many ways that we can reduce the influence of traumatic brain injury from the start, right? Just take it off the table altogether. Right, but you tell a correctional officer he can't use force or you tell a gang member in a prison they can't use force. That's a, it's, it's a retraining of, of awareness. Social norm change, yeah. Exactly, but kind of, kind of the responsibility falls on all of society. Policemen, they're also contributing to traumatic brain injury, right? And so then we ask, we tell this individual they need to behave but yeah. they don't have control of these impulses anymore. Right. Um, it's similar, it, what you're describing sounds like a teenager or someone without a prefrontal yeah. cortex. That's Just right. Fritzi, you're totally right on. It, uh, the most common kind of brain injury is a frontal lobe brain injury just because of oh. the things we do, right? Like we drive in cars and don't wear a seatbelt and hit our head. We go over the handlebars on a bike. We crash into trees on skateboards. You know, we get punched in the face. Like there's a lot of vulnerability for our frontal lobe, right? That front part of our brain to be injured. And those abilities that live there are our most sophisticated. And in ways we don't even think about, they're really prerequisite for staying afloat in society, right? Being able to forecast consequences and to read ambiguous social cues and to uh, to follow norms, to follow social norms. And that's all frontal lobe. Right, and when you're frustrated, you think something's wrong with you. Right, that's and, right. And that's what's so devastating. And, and I see the progression of a like, I'm a bad person, I can't function, and a progression towards a lack of hope and possibility. And this is what we see in our research is, and we are so far downstream of their injury when we're evaluating them. They've already burned through their friends and family. They've exhausted all of their social support. They've been involved in the criminal justice system for in some cases, decades. So we're so far downstream of the original injury, but what every one of our participants shares is this belief that they're stupid and broken and worthless and you know I'm just a piece of shit right the belief that they're just throw away that they're garbage and society has reinforced that we really need them to believe that they're throw away so that they're okay being locked up for right like way outside of town for as long as we need them to be locked up so that we feel safer and to change that perspective to say like uh well uh, gosh, that was a tremendous injury to your head. And we do a cognitive evaluation and we point out like, uh, and you know what, you are right. Your memory is terrible, but here's this interesting thing that you actually do really well, right? And maybe it's your capacity for visual memory is a little bit better. So you need to ask for handouts of everything you need to remember, or you need to record notes or whatever the case may be. If you give them tools 
to address whatever that deficit might be. And for the person who's impulsive, they also feel out of control and they just, they feel like their life happens to them and you know, they're just along for the ride and to give them tools like basic mindfulness or a simple tool like uh, stop, think, act that they might use in the moment gives them control over their own experience. And we're finding in our research in criminal justice that those really simple tools give someone the mastery to stay out of the criminal justice system. And isn't that the goal? Um, right. You, um, you said in one of your TED talks, you said behavior as a deficit rather than a defiance, because yeah. that is one of the things that gets many of the people that are in prison more tickets, more uh, in, infractions, more time in, in solitary confinement. And so how do we educate our policemen and our correctional officers and our wardens yeah. that defiance is a sign of a mental, of a brain problem? Right, and thinking about the ways that a deficit uh, masquerades as non-compliance or defiance. So we see this a lot and we do a lot of education with all of those stakeholders. Uh, let's say for example, we do a training with judges. They have a young defendant in their courtroom who may have a processing speed deficit. So their brain just has a slower idling speed. It takes things longer to get in and then for the response to get back out. And what the judge sees is that this kid stares at them blankly for the length of time that the judge allows them to be silent before asking the next question. So what the court sees, in this case, the judge sees is a kid that is not paying attention or uh, not participating in his own defense or, uh, you know, worse yet is, you know, just altogether uh, antagonizing in some way to the court. So it's, there's a way that framing those behaviors as a product of a cognitive deficit changes the way the system responds to this, in this case, right, this young court defendant, it may be to the inmate or probationer. Yeah, that the person with inattention is gonna have a hard time following directions when it's really noisy. So making sure that you have eye contact when you give them directions or, uh, if you need them to pay attention during a meeting to seat them facing away from an open door during that meeting because they're just otherwise paying attention to whatever's happening outside your office. Well, yeah. but also wanting to stay safe. So if you're highly traumatized, you can't pay attention to what's in front of you. You totally. can't learn to, it, it's like, yep. you've got to make sure that person, it's almost, you. it's like, the criminal justice system has to meet people where they're at yeah, totally. and, and then find out what's going on with that person. It's not defiance. It's, it's actually um, a social um, disability. Yeah. Yep. And these are all invisible disabilities. So you made the point about we wouldn't respond in this way. We wouldn't say run faster if we saw that someone was an amputee. Uh, but we do ask people to think faster and to respond quicker and to remember things better when in fact their capacity to do that is completely impaired. And so we've, we're dealing with a brain that's not working and it's also more aggressive, right? So it's, I don't know if it goes to the amygdala or if it's just another 
-hmm. but but people are quick to respond because they're either in fight or flight or their brain just is more aggressive. Uh, and their capacity to de-escalate themselves is impaired. And in a lot of environments, the skills of the other folks. So we're doing, there's a big press in law enforcement for the last decade or so to do uh, crisis intervention training and de-escalation training, recognizing that uh, these are skills that officers or correctional officers or probation officers and uh, other officers of the court need to have to be able to talk someone down and to give them right the tools to like safely comport themselves in that moment. Without those skills, things go off the rails really quickly. And you're right, in some cases, someone who is uh, easily agitated and potentially combative they pose a risk to the people around them, right? So it's it's not as if the system is responding to a threat that doesn't exist. We're saying there are other tools to respond to this threat that would avoid anyone being harmed. And we're also not considering that there's a high, probably good probability that the correctional officers, the police officers have some TBI or childhood trauma. So they're in trigger mode as well. Sure, yeah. I mean, there's all kinds of ways that we uh, forget to think about trauma history and uh, traumatic brain injury history in other populations. So in the case of law enforcement officers, in the case of correctional officers, also among the behavioral health professionals, right? Like how do we, uh, when we're doing education on skill building, for example, how do we deliver these tools even to that audience in a way that will really land? and using multiple visual formats and handouts and skill drills, right? Like practice skill drills. You're right. Wow. Wow. It's like, it's like this conversation is just pointing to the fact that we have all of it wrong. I mean, <laughs> so many things wrong. Sure. Yeah. But, um, so brain scans on, on, people incarcerated. To me, that seems like, especially for the, I mean, what about the people that are just untreatable or just so damaged or so violent? I mean, what do you think is going on in their brains? So great question. Wearing my hat as a researcher, I also do some psychopathy research and I teach the psychology of criminal behavior at the University of Denver in our graduate program. Uh, there, I think there's a, a whole ethical issue that we have. We probably have avoided eye contact largely with it, uh, with the application of neuroimaging research, for example, in criminal justice and in what ways that is going to benefit stakeholders in criminal justice. So let's say the inmates and in what ways that could be misinterpreted to ensure they stay in criminal justice, right? I don't even think we've figured out how to be responsible with our fancy new tools. Um, and uh, in forensic psychology, there's always a conversation about, right? Like some are left behind and there really are some folks who have become so broken by their experiences that, uh, you know, that a really safe community re-entry is probably not 
in their future? And what do we do with them? There's got to be a humane way to, um, you know, ensure that we can meet their needs and promote community safety. But you're right. I've definitely uh, have spent enough time in corrections to know that uh, there are some folks who are just are not going to be rehabbed in the way that the modal inmate can be rehabilitated. And there is an ethical issue, like too much information can be used for you or against you. Totally. Yep. And, but it's also, I'm so curious, um, Dr. Amen, I don't right. know. If he, yeah. He talked about us. Um, I guess it was, I think it was his son who was, or he was kind of sociopathic and they found a tumor in his brain. It's like, what if we, you know, what if we took a look? It's, especially yeah, sure. for the people, especially for the people who we just decide they're never going home. They're yeah. never going home. Why don't we take a look? Because maybe there's a big, you know, how do we, re and how do we rehabilitate brains? What do we do? What's our, what's the path forward? Right. And there really, there's no rehab for someone with a great big brain tumor in their frontal lobe, right? Like, and if we miss the boat on treating their brain tumor, right? The stakes couldn't be higher. It's a death sentence for that person to end up in criminal justice, right? To have an unrecognized medical condition in that case, you know, some kind of metastatic cancer in the brain. Uh, for other folks who, let's say, who don't have a parent who is the, uh, you know, director of a neuroimaging empire, <laughs> right? Their behavior changes on a dime and we chalk it up to like, well, they just lost it. And I guess it just got to be too much for them, right? We tell a very different story for a lot of folks who very well may have either uh, some kind of brain anomaly. They may have a hormonal problem, like all kinds of physiological explanations for behavior change, temporal lobe epilepsy, you name it, and we lump them all together, and and then we're not surprised when they don't benefit from group therapy in jail. Mm. Yeah, but I think you're right. I think it would be a great addition to criminal justice if somewhere upstream we at least ran everybody through some basic physical exam to rule out treatable illness and to rule in ways that you could treat other conditions, right? Identifying other chronic health conditions. Yeah. Of course, you'll never have that, right? You think about how expensive that would be. <laughs> but wouldn't it be smart to at least give someone the tools to manage their own health? But isn't it really expensive to lose and to have another victim? Isn't that expensive? Yeah. And I think that's... <laughs> yeah, I agree. Yeah that's that's where we're the disconnect is it's like lock them up throw away the key and as oprah said someone's going to find the key and they're going to come out <laughs> right uh 95 of the people who are incarcerated right now will return to the community at some point so it's not as if our strategy to avoid eye contact is viable in the long term right these are the folks who return to hold jobs in our community, to live in homes, to, you know, we really are better served by community re-entry programming that's meaningful, that ultimately yields successful outcomes, that makes people feel like they're 
stakeholders, part of a community with some ownership and. Yes, yes. In Norway, they start reentry the day you walk into prison. Smart, right? They're, they're figuring out, okay, what does this person need? What's wrong with his brain? Why is he being aggressive in, when he's, you know, when they talk about peanut butter or whatever, yeah. whatever the trigger is? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Love that. Yeah, but you're right. There's uh, our approach to incarceration is uh, uniquely Hobbesian from, for any of your philosophy listeners, but it's, uh, we have a really dubious distinction of managing people who are incarcerated in a certain way that is uh, relative to a lot of systems inhumane. We, um, you know, our, the prison industrial complex is just enormous and is uh, a big behemoth that, that responds in some ways to social change, but is slow and sluggish and requires a lot of pressure to do that. And I mean, this is the work you're doing, right? Is to bring awareness to it and encouraging people to press for change. What, what does Hobbesian mean? I don't know what- uh, That is an old, for anybody who was like a philosophy major will recognize Thomas Hobbes was a philosophy, this in, I guess the uh, 15th century, uh, who wrote about how man is incapable of managing himself and prone to violence and lawlessness and uh, has a short brutish life, which was a contrast to people who uh, would suggest that we have the capacity to be kind and altruistic and community driven and, you know, to serve a greater good. And Hobbesian philosophy says like, no, you're just upright apes who are going to kill each other if there were no laws and letters to say otherwise. Well, I think he's right on one level. If you're in your amygdala, if you're in fight or flight, you're in your animal. But if you perceive everything as threatening, you bet. Right. And, yeah. and prisons uh, have, a, have a high threat toler uh, uh, threshold, you know, there's, it's constant threat. So the, the thing would be to bring down the threat level. And interesting that you're in Colorado, I don't know. I think you know about what they've done with solitary. Mm -hmm. um, they, uh, Rick Ramish uh, reports an 80% reduction in violence because yep. he removed, he took solitary off the table. That's good, yeah. Uh, he really, Colorado was really notorious for its use of, we call it administrative segregation and Rick Ramish has made from day one when he took that post sweeping changes across the board. Yeah. And, and now you're with, you're he working really in that role now. Yeah. Yeah. And they're doing amazing things. And it, of course, when I, when I put the, it was like, I just interviewed both of them. And then here I am, I'm back in Colorado talking yeah. to people thinking about, yeah. you know, criminal justice and, and humanity and right. humane practices. Right. Um, so that, uh, Rick Ramish's predecessor was murdered at his home by an inmate who had spent time in, in Mount Clements yeah. and then just decompensated. I mean, it just uh, was like one of our more high profile tragedies, but uh, it was great to see the system respond in a way that recognized 
where the real villain is, right? In terms of policy and not people. Yes. Have we ever had the opportunity to look at the brains of people in solitary, I wonder? Uh, I've not seen that of uh, a scan of folks maybe before and after they spend time in ad seg. Not seen that. Fritzi, it's yeah. a great question. Yeah, because I'm wondering about the, you know, they say that after seven days, the EEG goes, the, I don't know what happens, but it goes yeah. down. It's, there's less brain activity. Does that yeah. make sense? It does, right? If you think about part of our resting baseline state is processing everything going on in our environment and selectively attending to, right? Like you and I could be talking, but I don't hear that my dogs are wandering around downstairs or right, cars are driving by, and, right? There's a lot of demand cognitively. And if you strip all that away, and yes, and we're also talking about institutionalization. I'm, I'm talking with men coming home and, you know, they're freaking out because there's five different choices of mustards. Yeah. Like, Absolutely. yeah, that becomes a panic attack because they've only had one choice of mustard for 20 years. And right. so even those cognitive um, abilities are being sure the, the decision-making process is wiped away. Yeah. Um, yeah. One guy says his day is, is, um, is recorded by the meals that come by. He knows that the day's ending because it's dinner time. Yep. Yep. Uh, it's, I don't think most people who haven't had either the experience of being in a jail or prison setting uh, on either side of the bars have any idea about how rough it is for the people on both sides of the bars, but especially in this case for the people who make a transition from being incarcerated back into the community, the, I mean, to call it jarring would be such an understatement. Yes, and then yeah. we take away the, all their rights. We mm -hmm. take away their possibility for support. And right. then we say, go figure it out. Yep. Go do go do that. We say you have to figure it out on a certain timeline, or you're going to be right back in here, right? That's where we find a lot of our folks get themselves into a lot of trouble. Is you know managing all of the requirements and the required appointments, and to be at a certain location to drop a urine sample at a certain time, and to catch the bus to a job interview, and to secure a new therapist on schedule. It's there's a lot to juggle in that period of time after someone is released from jail that is requires a lot of cognitive sophistication. It would be challenging even for you and I to manage that calendar in that first few months. Yes, and so why do we do that? Why do we create, it's like a, it's like a maze for this person yes. and oh. to, to prove that he's, he's compliant. It's like, but it's, 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 People just need, I mean, we hired someone right out of prison, but I said, you know, take some time. We're gonna still pay you because you need you need to have some money, but you also need to just, you know, have a sandwich. Yeah, I love that so much. This is the way that your listeners are part of the solution, right? Like you've set that example to be part of the solution to, in this case, how do you support returning citizens? You employ them and you pay them, right? That's like one and two, done. 
uh, there are, and this is a different conversation, but as we talk about those, you know, this maze that we require people to, to run, right? Like rats in a maze, uh, for women coming out of criminal justice, there are, right, even additional requirements for them. I'm thinking of uh, statistically three quarters of women are either pregnant or parenting dependent mm-hmm. age kids who are in criminal justice. And so uh, we see a lot of women whose re-entry requirements are for employment and housing and to maintain compliance with a substance use program. So they have to drop urine samples on a regular schedule or report for methadone treatment or whatever the case is. Uh, And they're trying to tick a whole bunch of boxes to get custody of their kids back or to forestall losing custody of their kids. And it just is, uh, you just think of like the ways that we make it so hard. And then for women, we've like exponentially created even more hardship. And then you go back to jail if you, if you don't comply, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's all conditional release and there's, it's, it's a lot of work to get off paper for, right? It's, yeah. I, I mean, I've heard of people you know, say, well, that's a three hour drive and the probation officer will say tough. Yeah. But it's like, they don't have a car. Like, right? what expectations do we have? Not to mention if you've been in solitary, um, you don't even want to leave your house. Right. Thinking about your social skills being completely atrophied. Sure. Yeah. It just is, uh, in all the ways you're pointing out, it's so punitive and is really uh, designed to create, promote, in some ways incentivize failure. And there's ways we could do better. I think the stakes are highest on the community reentry side, right? To like create a scaffold of community support so that we could keep people in the communities, but you're right. Employment practices, you know, having to tick a box on a job application creates a a condition of unemployability versus just unemployment. Yes. And they want to know if you're a violent offender. And that was 20 years ago. What if they've had 300,000 hours of community work in within the prison? They've worked on themselves. They've gotten degrees. And still they're ticking a box. Yeah. You know, it's, you're set up to fail and and I want them to be set up to win and and be our neighbors and be our leaders. Right. I love that. Totally love it. Because that's, that's who they really are. You know, John Kabat-Zinn says everyone is a genius, right? Love it. And okay. And so you have a mental impairment because you were bashed in the head with a kid. Right. Robert Sapolsky. A hundred times, yeah. A hundred times, exactly. We don't even understand the level of abuse that some of these poor people have dealt with. Um, Robert Sapolsky talks about death row and and if we examined their brains, if we knew the what kind of brains they had, we would understand that they aren't, that they are just, it's the machinery that's broken. It's not yeah. the human that's broken. Yeah. Uh, there's great research looking at the uh, neuroimaging data on brain scans of uh, 
of especially juveniles who've been convicted of really violent offenses, murder, attempted murder, uh, and those rates of really frank anomalies. So these are structural effects related to, let's say, brain injury. It's 100%. So things like uh, brain injury, fetal alcohol syndrome, right? There's just a whole host of neurological contributors to the problems in, in this case, those young adults find themselves with. So there are brain scans of, mm. of youth. For young offenders, yep. Wow. Yeah, with really serious charges. And what's, uh, this is just a little sidebar into research. Uh, the data we have from neuroimaging studies are still fairly small scale, right? I think uh, the study on um, uh, young adults who had a juvenile homicide or attempted homicide you know, may have had six or 10 people in the study. So it's hard to draw a lot of conclusions, but if all of the folks observed in that study have some really observable brain dysfunction, we should be really thoughtful about how to screen for that further upstream and we may have saved some people's lives. Well, it's like autism. This We should be treating this like a spectrum disorder. Right, and, I love that. Right, if this isn't, this isn't normal, This, but this is something that happened to this person and they're not bad. They just don't, they don't know how else to be. Mm -hmm. Right. And they need to be like, not institutionalized, but, you know, trained how to be in our society, like skill building. Yep. Skill building instead of incarcerating. And that's, you know, I've, I'm with men in who've been in since they were 15, 16 yeah. years old. What happened? It's not what's wrong with you. It's what happened. Uh, Fritzi, I love that. I just used that in a, a blog piece that I just wrote this week talking about uh, this was for physicians on like how to understand patients better and instead of assuming someone is treatment resistant or non-compliant to ask them right what happened versus what's wrong with you yeah I love it it's so important and uh, some fields have become really trauma-informed and that's a credit to the work you're doing. It's a credit to a, a huge evolution in behavioral health models, but uh, we have a lot of work to do. <laughs> we really do. We do, but just having this conversation about brains, because this to me, it's all about the brain and trauma affects the brain. Mm -hmm. Traumatic brain injury affects yep. the brain. Yep. Social, you know, social uh, environments affect the brain. Yeah. And we've found, uh, and this is, I think, uh, a, a key when you're talking about culture change. I found that in my clinical work and in research that thinking about cognitive deficits or like impulsivity, for example, uh, thinking about depression, anxiety, suicidality as a product of brain dysfunction is actually 
destigmatizing in a lot of ways. And uh, for folks who really don't want to have a conversation about feeling depressed or feeling anxious or about their trauma history, they may actually be really responsive to conversations about the effects of that time they were knocked out in a car accident and thrown from the car or that time they were struck in the head with a bat and ended up hospitalized for a week or whatever the case is, right? That there's a way that it normalizes the experience for them. And to think of uh, their, the constellation of experiences they have now. So maybe they have sleep disturbance and they feel depressed and they have uh, nightmares and they have a whole long series of failed relationships right? Like to think about those as uh, products of their injured brain gives them control of it again, right? It doesn't mean like, oh, look at all these things that happened to you because of your injured brain. It just is a way of understanding the root cause and then to addressing it. Yes, the stigma. I mean, that's the thing. There's such a stigma. PTSD. Um, People, Officers, they're, you know, at least 35% of have PTSD working in that occupation, yep. but they won't come forward because they're going to be taken off their shift or whatever. It's going to, yep. it's going to impair their lives instead of it being like far out. You just came forward. Let's get you some help. Let's keep, let's make sure you get the, you get back on your beat or whatever it is, yep. but let's not penalize you. Right. For, for talking about what's going on because we need you to be upfront about your disability. Right. Yeah, I love it. If we could incentivize people to uh, disclose their need for care, (laughs) we would have fixed the whole system right there. Uh, And I found that we get a lot of traction with folks talking about, right, the, the physiology of those conditions and talking about uh, the physiology of hypervigilance, for example, right? Like, well, this is a product of exposure to trauma in that way. And then, right, it takes it away from uh, their feeling of being inadequate or somehow not having been strong enough to cope with a trauma, right? To just think about, oh, well, that's what happens after you, in this case, have a traumatic experience or injure your brain or whatever the case is. But it's all an injured, it's all the, it's all brain injury. This is what I, I see all of these things that way. Exactly. And I think that conversation about talking about the physiology. So this is the, the physiological mechanism that underlies PTSD, that underlies Uh, anxiety, depression that underlies post-traumatic headache and post-traumatic depression or post-traumatic suicidal ideation. Talking about the physiological mechanisms goes a long way towards destigmatizing it. Okay. So one last question. Yeah. What's the way forward? How do we, how do we recover from TBI and what do we do? What do we do as a society to to support the people that have been. Yeah, Uh, Fritzi, I love this. So uh, 
the great thing about working in brain injury, and I work with people who've been injured, I work with people who uh, are trying to prevent dementing disease, I work with people who have dementing disease. The great thing about the brain is it's tremendously plastic. So there's so much that we do that can not only restore volume to the parts of the brain where that volume is lost, so hippocampal volume, uh, but there's so much you can do with those kinds of uh, simple skills, basic accommodations. Uh, for a lot of folks, it's you know low, using low-tech technology like is true on their phone, right? These are ways to substantially change their brain and improve the quality of their life. So uh, even basic things like elevated heart rate for 60 seconds at a time restores hippocampal volume. And like, we have such control over that part. So that's what I love about this field is that there's an inherent kind of optimism to it, right? Because it's like, okay, well, we're gonna work to, to rebound as much as we can and promote your recovery and let's see how far we get. And we're gonna work around to compensate for the deficits you're left with. <laughs> so it's like, we just do it. So uh, there is, you know, in terms of what you do, all the things that we do to invest in our own brain health and the brain health of our communities are all great ways to ensure that we get a big return on our investment. In the brain injury world, we talk a lot about, uh, so we're doing research on people who've been injured, treatment, intervention. If we had better work for primary prevention, so if we could keep injuries from happening in the first place, all of us would be out of a job, which would be great. <laughs> So, you know, this is, you know, pressing for, I've mentioned this before, but, you know, it's helmets and seatbelts and, uh, you know, reductions in risk of child abuse and interpersonal violence, right? Reducing exposure to interpersonal violence, especially for women. Uh, all of those primary prevention efforts can yield such powerful effects. And then the secondary prevention efforts, like, uh, ensuring that catastrophic care coverage is available as an insurance benefit to everybody. And it should just be a mandatory addition to every policy so that people who have really severe injuries can access rehabilitative care and uh, ensuring that people can access behavioral health. So mental health, substance use services when they need them, Right, so when a problem arises to ensure there's treatment available is also a really profound intervention too. And so important because we forget, so we forget, so we don't ensure this person, then they're walking in the streets with violent tendencies. Right. Sure. It's so, and then we're creating yep. more victims by yep. saving $20 or whatever it is. Whatever that policy would have cost, yep. Right, and so instead of saying, you know what, we need to take care of everybody, who was going through this yep. because they belong to us and we want yep. to make sure everybody's safe and taken care of, yep. not just the person who's injured, but the person he's going to injure. Right. Sure. That's absolutely right. And the collateral damage to their uh, partner, their kids, their family, their parents, their coworkers and friends, right? Like a uh, traumatic brain injury has a lot of 
collateral impact and it can be even more devastating sometimes for families and friends than even the person who's injured. Yeah, exactly. Just like, you know, I think of the correctional officers and they have a 39% higher um, suicide rate and um, 20% higher divorce rate. Well, that's two aces right there. You've already started, you already started your kid on the way towards prison. Um, You're seven times more likely to go to prison if you have four more aces. So there you go. You're halfway there with, yeah, you know, there's so much work to be done, but you're, voice is the loudest in this space. And it's, uh, it's remarkable, the groundswell of change that you've initiated here. Well, and Kim, I want to thank you so much for your wisdom. And please, everyone, please watch her TED Talk, because she really gives some great tips on, on what we can do in the criminal justice system, when people are paroled, just to get to their appointment. And it's just fantastic. And thank you for that talk, I when I saw it, I was like, I'm calling her now. I gotta get it. So glad gotta, you did. Yes, and keep spreading the word. And you know, if you ever have a blog about how we can take care of our brains better, um, I'm gonna keep I'm gonna keep checking so we can link to it and totally get people into brain health. Love it. Love Kim, it. Thank you for your time and thank Chrissy, you for thanks for having me. Thanks for your hard work and letting me be part of your empire here. Yes. And a voice of, of sanity and, you know, talk about brain health. Yeah. Thank you, Kim. Thank you so much. Thanks Fritzy. What a fascinating conversation with Kim Gorgans. Um, I didn't even realize that most traumatic brain injuries happen in the prefrontal cortex. And of course, of course, all I talk about is how, when the prefrontal cortex is offline, we're unable to have morality, have, um, wisdom, have understanding of consequences, things like that. And Kim's, Kim's research is groundbreaking and imperative that we listen to the signs of what, what people are saying when they're doing crimes and when they're harming others, because more often than not, it's a brain injury or a brain impairment rather than a, a bad person. Um, so let's, let's really start bringing mental health and brain awareness, brain health awareness to our society. And let's start forgiving and understanding rather than punishing and harming. Thanks again for watching. Please like, share, and subscribe to this podcast. And I'll see you next time.